0: Hello, my name is Juliet Jakes, here with a special recording for Resonance 104.4 FM's 18th birthday. As well as being a writer and filmmaker, I also hosted Suite 212 on Resonance for two years, and appeared on Café Calcio, Navarro FM, out in South London, and other shows on Resonance, still London's most innovative and interesting radio station. The first is a short piece that I wrote in 2008, and published first in the London magazine. It's inspired by the work of the Dutch artist Bastian Arder, who was active in the early 1970s, and it's called I'm Too Sad to Tell You About I'm Too Sad to Tell You. Sometimes, journalists call me and beg me to tell them about Bastian Arder. I've always told them it's too sad to talk about, but as time has passed, they've become more persistent, so I've decided to tell you about I'm Too Sad to Tell You, but this is the last time. I started with Bastian in Los Angeles. One day he invited me to his studio, camera in hand, and led me inside. He handed me the camera, stood against the wall, and started weeping. I turned on the camera and pointed the lens at him. After three minutes and 22 seconds, the 60 millimeter film ran out. Immediately, the tears stopped, the last one leaving his cheek the moment the camera stopped rolling. I put the cap back on the lens and turned to leave. He tapped me on the shoulder, led me to a cafe, brought me a cup of coffee, and sat down. Did you walk here? He asked. I nodded. You saw anti war protesters everywhere, yes? I nodded again. Why? He asked. Well, they believe America has no right to be in Vietnam, I replied, and they're angry about the senseless loss of life. Oh, you've read the papers, said Bastian. They've misunderstood, perhaps deliberately. The war stimulates their anger, yes, but it doesn't generate it. Intellectually, the protesters think the war is wrong, but their protest provides an outlet for emotions that they aren't allowed to express. The fundamental emotion is sadness, the most painful feeling and the hardest to comprehend. People feel angry because they can't express their sadness. The way society shuns those who make it explicit means they have to repress it and it becomes anger. So why isn't everyone out protesting? I asked. Because people act on their anger in different ways. Some people protest against wars, others make them. Some don't express the anger at all. They feel they're not allowed to express anger any more than sadness, and they become depressed. That's why we've made this film. Won't it make people more depressed? No, replied Bassian. It will make people reconnect with the raw emotion they repressed as they became adults, and force them to confront it. Why not challenge them with happiness, I said, the happiness we all felt in our childhoods. The happiness we claim to remember from our childhoods, he replied. I think that before people can even contemplate happiness, they have to understand their sadness. People will say the film is too much for them. They will become ready, Bassian replied. You think you're Christ. I'm not dying for anyone, declared Bastian. I just make films. How will people know you're not faking it? Bastian stood, without looking at me, took his camera and left. I didn't call him. I heard nothing from him for several years, until I heard that I'm Too Sad to Tell You was screening in Los Angeles. Bastian's handwritten title flashed silently across the frame, then for the next three minutes and 22 seconds, His head rolled in genuine anguish, tears streaming down his cheeks. I felt a tap on my shoulder. You're crying, said Bassian. You made me, I replied. My next work will make you happy, he said. Come to my studio tomorrow. His door was open when I arrived. You inspired this, said Bassian, as I cast my eyes upon the boat that dominated the tiny studio. This is the ocean wave. It's the only tangible part of my next project, in search of the miraculous. You think it's very small. It is, only 13 feet. But when I sail from Massachusetts to Falmouth in England, it'll become the smallest craft ever to cross the Atlantic. That's insane, I told him. The project will hopefully contain elements of what some consider insanity, Bastian replied. The mental voyage is far more important than the physical one. Amidst the calmness of the ocean, without any distractions, my mind shall be focused purely on attacking the roots of human sadness until it can only collapse and give way to pure happiness. How do you propose to do that? I asked. By focusing on nothing else until I have found the answer, he replied. The journey I record in my logbooks shall be purely psychological. When I return to land, I shall publish them. They will show the way. You imagine yourself finding a formula for endless happiness? Of course not, Bastian replied. I hope to find happiness for myself, within myself. It's up to other people whether or not they follow my example. No, it's too much for you, I told him. You'll go mad. It's an experiment, he replied. If I fail, I fail. You think you're Christ. I thought, but I didn't repeat myself. I shook his hand, wished him luck and walked away. The telegram arrived as I was alone in my flat, half watching a family strive to win thousands of dollars on a game show. Emotional patterns established before conscious memory, stop. So the first step is the only step, stop. Acceptance of sadness is victory over sadness, stop. Humans look for happiness, And they should be seeking contentment, stop. The miraculous has been found and the search can stop. The ocean wave was found drifting off the coast of Ireland, nine months and two weeks after I received the telegram. They never found Bassianada or his notebooks. When I heard, I sent a copy of the telegram to several national newspapers, all of which said that Bassian was not famous enough for them to publish it especially as its content might upset emotionally fragile readers. Since then, I've kept it in a box with the paintings I've been unable to sell, and it's too sad to show it to anyone. This next piece was commissioned by the writers Daniela Koshela and Natasha Subramanian for Smarjanature, a project that explores the ways in which language and languages can elude definitions and trespass boundaries. And it was published on the Writing Sound Bergen website in 2016. I was encouraged to respond to the work of a female or non-binary writer who interested me and I went for the Surrealist author and photographer Claude Cahun, who was active from the 1920s through to the 1950s and it's called Sertraline Surrealism. Please note listeners that this piece describes transphobia, homophobia and mental health issues and contains some imagery that some listeners might find distressing. Sertraline Surrealism, after Claude Cahun. I read somewhere that the romantic poets ate rotten meat before they went to sleep, so they would have more intense dreams. I can't remember where. I'm always memorising facts and quotes, but never where I saw them. It might have been in that Hugh Sykes-Davis essay, Biology and Surrealism, where he argues that surrealism, rather than being a bold new movement, or even a fusion of Dada. Freudian psychoanalysis and revolutionary Marxism was actually a continuation of Shelley, Byron, Coleridge, and company, rendering it traditional and domestic, but probably not. It doesn't matter. I've got sertraline. Abnormal dreams are listed as an uncommon side effect. 0.1 to 1% of users experience them, but I'm in that minority. I tried everything to manage my depression radical politics, psychotherapy. Gender reassignment, reading and writing, but nothing shifted it. Age 34, with my first book behind me, a memoir which brought catharsis, but also plenty of worries about how to represent myself and the transgender community, I felt I had no option besides SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. The effect that this would have on me would be revealed within a few weeks. Things that once induced panic now seemed manageable. The futility of life now felt like something I could address creatively rather than with despair for years. I worried that my mental health issues and artistic impulses were intrinsically linked, a precept fueled by reading the Romantics with their fixation on the neglected genius, as well as Andre Bresson's Nadia, Rene Crevel, and other surrealists, with their celebration of convulsive beauty. But not Claude Cahun. I didn't hear your name or that of any surrealist women who shaped their own worlds, until much later. My anxieties dissipated, I found it was easier to write with a clear head. But as the drug kicked in, my frantic neural activity manifested itself in sleeping visions, which felt more real than anything in my waking life. I'm outside the Pitié-Salpêtrière in the 13th arrondissement in Paris. After months of talking online, I'm meeting N for the first time. N translates the plaque on Jean-Martin Charcot's work on hypnosis and hysteria into a language I can understand. I take a moment to think about those women and what might have driven them into such a condition before we go into the garden. On a bench sits a blonde woman. A tarot reader shows her cards. I want to see them, but as I get close, the images turn into silver holograms. I request a reading, but neither of them pay attention to me and N leads me into the church. I look for Charcot, but he cannot be found. Hysterical women line the pews, laughing spasmodically as N and I walk up the aisle in matching outfits, white shirts with black ties and long white lace skirts with petticoats. As we reach the altar and pose for some photographs, they kneel. The statues of saints tell them to demand a cure from N and me. The congregation stand and march towards us. N and I race through a park to a network of abandoned tunnels beneath the hospital. I read the graffiti, Front National slogans and anti-fascist stickers, before we come out by a derelict building, its windows smashed. We enter through a red door, with Joyeux Noël daubed across it in white paint, and step into the corridor. We see Michelangelo's creation of Adam, but God has breasts and a penis. She touches a naked woman, maybe Adam, with his fingertip. They're surrounded by faces that look familiar, but I don't recognise. Maybe they're Antonin Artaud, André Breton, Benjamin Pere, Philippe Soupeau, and other notable surrealist writers. It's dated the 3rd of October 1999, the day I turned 18, but it looks like the building was disused long before the end of the 20th century. Didn't Claude Cahoon write that the year 2000 would be the end of the world? I remember the millennium bug, which passed without incident, and the apocalyptic events in New York 21 months later, and all that came after that. Next, we see two dining rooms. The one on the left is painted white, its walls bare, its windows barred. This must have been for the patients. The right-hand room is mustard yellow, with Klimt and Corbet on display, the window looking at the park and the hospital in the distance. Both rooms are set for Christmas dinner, with fine china and cutlery on pristine tablecloths, crackers and tinsel, but there's no one in sight. Unnerved, we return to the corridor. The mural has vanished. Only the date remains. 18th of July 2012, the day of my sex reassignment surgery. A stern man with white hair and thick eyebrows grab me. You do not fit, he says. Neuter is the only gender that always suits me, I reply, before N asks, I thought you preferred she and her. Before I can respond, the man lunges at N. I grab for N's hand and watch as my companion vanishes into thin air. Your voice is male, the man insists. How do you know, I reply. He strips me and enforces a needle into my breast. As a group of men, medics or psychiatrists, rush through the door and drag me out. I wake up, sweating. That dream. It's not real. Of course it's not real, replies N. The symbolism is too convenient. No, no, I reply. I mean, it actually happened. Nonsense, N tells me. No, you took me to the Salpetriere and told me about Charcot. Last autumn. It was a dreamlike experience, for sure, but we did go to the hospital and the church, and through those tunnels to that abandoned building. Maybe so, says N, but I'm a composite of several of your friends. You've changed lots of the details, and none of those other people were there. Perhaps I dreamt them, I reply. No, you wrote them, says N. But what is writing? I reply if not lucid dreaming. But when you write, says N, you're in complete control. It's true that I create characters and put them in situations, often drawing on real life. After that, I never know what will happen. If I did, I'd have no interest in writing it. Sometimes I do things I don't expect, or even that I find abhorrent. It's not quite the same as a normal dream, Where you're a spectator in a scenario that your unconscious throws at you, I admit. Years ago, I had this period of lucid dreaming. It never lasted long, maybe just a few seconds, but at some point, I'd know I was in a dream and I could make decisions. If it was a nightmare, I could make myself wake up. Did you keep a diary of them? asks N. Only occasionally, I reply. I felt that writing them down would change them. I might misremember or embellish them, or even begin to influence them in advance. Did you enjoy them? Yes, I reply. My job at the time was unbearably dull, so it was the best form of escapism. I was always bored easily, even as a child, especially as a child, trying to make mundane suburbia more captivating. Anything that created its own world interested me. Video games, music, movies, novels. Everything I consumed formed sediment in my mind, and it became impossible to tell which became cornerstones of my consciousness and which didn't. I knew that Dada and surrealism, futurism, transgender theory and lived experience were important to me, while romanticism, rationalism and religion were not. But none of them transformed my days into anything transcendent or raised my dreams above reflections of my anxiety and frustration. Gradually. I realised that being a neglected artist or convulsive beauty was not what I'd been sold. The numerous rejections may not have been because I was ahead of my time, but simply because I wasn't good enough. Being desirable to men who were attracted to trans women usually resulted in objectification or molestation. Before I turned 30, it had worn me down so much that I asked my GP for antidepressants and I left with a prescription of 20 milligrams of citalopram a day. The suicidal thoughts lifted, as did the initial headaches and nausea, but I lost my appetite and often felt exhausted, and was terrified of sleeping as I had such awful nightmares. Old friends who had alienated with my refusal to tolerate anything I thought mediocre returned to reproach me, Victorian ailments, hysteria, elephantiasis, public humiliation at the hands of a mistress. on waking, I reoriented myself, but when sleeping. Lines between dream and reality became indistinguishable. This, however, was not what I'd intended. I came off the medication, my appetite returned, I had more energy and my dreams calmed down. I decided to try again to manage my depression through my material world, but eventually this cycle turned me back to the pharmaceutical. This time, maybe the side effects have been manageable, or perhaps five years older, I'm willing to accept more side effects if I feel an overall improvement. Staying sane is a lifetime's work. I knew your name, Claude, but I hadn't read disavowals or cancelled confessions when I was documenting my gender reassignment, first for a newspaper, then as a memoir. If I had, maybe I would have seen parallels between your declaration that neuter is the only gender that always suits me. And my conclusion to my Guardian series that there are as many gender identities as there are people, all unique, all constantly being explored in conscious and unconscious ways. My articles were fragments, although they had to be realist, transparent like a window pane, written against myself and the literature I loved. Appropriately, it seems, your work came to me in pieces, an oblique self portrait of the queer arts and culture volume here a taster of Sarah Pussel's film, Magic Mirror, which turned passages and images from *Disavows* into tableau, there. I finally encountered your work in its fractured hole when a friend from Jersey, who identified with your subversion of the local Nazi occupation, curated an exhibition of your photos with Magic Mirror and asked me to speak about your writing. It was hard to gather my thoughts on something so disparate. I admired that you could write for yourself and not bend your style into something sellable, even if your literary family background gave you all the intellectual and financial support that one could ever need. But what of that book that you assembled over nearly a decade and finally published in May 1930, in an edition of 500 copies, not translated into English until 2007, long after that point in my life when I most needed it? I found 10 sections, fronted by photo collages that reminded me of Hannah Hop, A mixture of self-portraits, familiar-looking faces, perhaps Breton and his friends, disconnected bits of women's bodies, and my favourite, the chessboard under an ominous shadow that reminded me of Dada, Duchamp, Rose Salavie. Most of them were titled with acronyms, private jokes decipherable only to you. But one stood out. Myself, brackets, for want of anything better. Then, instantly, you turn towards and away from yourself, Cloaking yourself in metaphorical prose poetry, opting out of that autobiographical pact by giving false impressions before asking, express oneself, humiliate oneself? Yes, but for the right reason. But what are the right reasons? Is it the narcissism, the non-cooperation with God and passive resistance that you wrote about so nakedly, Nacadian before Lacan? The need to record one's existence or subjectivity before leaving the stage? Was it a realisation that the personal is political, avant la lettre, and that documenting your games with gender and identity might inspire others to make themselves into works of art? Or was it just that there was so much pain in being Jewish, female-bodied and queer in an anti-Semitic, misogynistic and homophobic world that you had to get those words out and throw them at someone, even if, as you knew, it wouldn't be many people, at least not in your lifetime? Trample on this, this flesh of my flesh, you wrote. Draw on remorse, weigh on my memory, on my obese statue, the only springboard that doesn't give way under me. This sentence. I understood why you would cancel your confessions, the nightmare of being in a position where readers, critics and editors demand that you give more away to keep them coming back, the hope that eternal validation might fix your sense of self, receding ever further. They will define you. And then you won't know how or who or where you are. Nonetheless, I don't regret putting my life on the page and I don't get the sense that you did either. Even if you weren't quite a part of the Surrealist group that so intrigued me, Claude, and given how hostile they were to anything besides heterosexuality and how women were rarely more than obscure objects of desire for them, I can understand why. Your writing and self-portraits felt so phantasmagorical and so resonance that I hope we might meet in the very eye of night. I'm back at school, in Surrey. I have this dream all the time, and it's always unbearable. I don't want to be here, and I don't need to do my GCSEs again. Nonetheless, I walk through the gate, past the bike shed and the basketball court, past the playground, where I spent every lunchtime kicking a tennis ball around in my itchy trousers. I stare up at the five-story tower block and then wonder why I keep coming here when I could just bunk the train to Brighton and... I enter by the English rooms and go past the library. There's a sign, Artist Salon. Anyone seen going in there will get their heads kicked in, I think, and then decide that I'm sick of having my life choices dictated by a small gang of bullies and nervously enter. Behind the door, there's a beach and it's nighttime. I look up at the stars. And then two small men, climbing into sailboats. The boat on the left has no name, the one on the right, smaller, has an inscription reading Ocean Wave. They set off, I wade into the waters to try and stop them, but a voice stops me, telling me to let them complete their own legends. I turn, it's a person sat alone, in a chequered shirt with a shaved head. As I watch the men drift over the horizon, oblivious to each other, The sea turns into a mirror, and we stare at our own reflections. Neither of us recognise we male or female. Hi, I'm Claude, says the figure. I'm your careers officer. Nice to meet you. What do you want to do after you leave school? Become a woman, I reply. No, I mean for work, says Claude. I don't know. Well, I want to be a writer, but... Everyone keeps telling me to forget about it and get a proper job. I write, says Claude. I just don't obsess about being famous for it. (laughs) Lucky you, I reply. You said you wanted to become a woman, Claude tells me. Write about that. I'm not sure, I reply. Claude pulls out some tarot cards. I imagine these will confirm whether or not I'll reach my goal, but once again, I can't see what's printed on them. Claude grins and returns them to a shirt pocket. I look at Claude, frustrated. It would be boring to write about something if you knew what was going to happen, Claude tells me. I shrug. The destination never matters. It's the journey. Write about the clothes you wear, the labels you give yourself, the sex you have with people of many genders or of no gender. Write about your mutilated victories and your brave defeats. Write about the dreams you have and the body you inhabit in them. Write because you want to and because you have to, not because of what you think it might bring to you. And only show it to people if you think it will liberate them or liberate you. I nod and leave the room. I step outside and the school has turned into the hospital where I worked as a cleaner when I was 16. The wards are named after towns and villages in Surrey. Ashdid, Earlswood, Hawley. I walk along the sterile corridors, listening to the sounds of women screaming from the single rooms. Doctors pull the curtains as I pass. I go back inside. Instead of the playground, of basketball courts and lakes, and the tower block has been replaced by a grandiose Victorian building. Red brick, with large windows and pillars, and a perfectly ordered garden leading up to it. A Union Jack flying from its top. I walk along the path to enter. And see Claude sat in the waiting room. As I reach the reception, a surgeon takes me into a laboratory and injects me with anaesthetic. The moment I fall asleep, I wake up. That wasn't a real dream either. Nor, of course, was it reality. symbolism's too convenient, too obviously an encounter that I would have liked to have had, back when I had no possibility models. Laverne Cox's phrase, which I prefer to role models. If it was a dream, I doubt the dialogue would have been that clear or that memorable. Normally, I can only recall fragments of conversations in my dreams, and those who've shared a room or a bed with me in this state tell me that I either mumble something incomprehensible or utter just a couple of distinct words, often ones that embarrass me. My searchline dreams far outstrip normality, as I'm a spectator to so long conversations that play out with friends and acquaintances, heroes and villains, the living and the dead, These must happen during my deepest sleep. A friend says that lucid dreams are a stage between that and waking, but these visions elude my control. I sometimes wonder what Charcot would have made of them. I hope that Cahoon would have told me to embrace them and draw upon them by day and night. Even when they're nightmarish, I could tell Claude, I want to turn them into poetry and prose to use as a weapon against reality or what I'm constantly told to accept as reality usually by those people who have the most invested in upholding the world as it is.